The 2020 Giro d'Italia is entering its unpredictable and dramatic final week, and Flow Bikes is home to all the action for viewers in the United States and Canada. Plus, the Vuelta Espana has only just begun, and Flow Bikes will be broadcasting the entire race live and on demand for Canadian subscribers. In addition to the live broadcast of La Vuelta, subscribers worldwide have access to a wealth of behind-the-scenes content, exclusive interviews with riders, expert analysis, and more. Don't miss the drama in store over the coming weeks, and don't miss out on the craziest fall of bike racing ever. When you purchase a Flow Bike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports network of over 25 sports. Sign up at flowbikes.com slash Vela News. That is flobikes.com forward slash Vela News. My flow bikes I have been using for everything from Flanders to the Giro to I I just turn it on all day long. So thanks to Flow Bikes for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Okay, let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you. It goes without saying it is a busy, busy day here in the Vela News universe. Uh, it is Tuesday. We are recording this. And earlier today, we had uh, a stage of the Giro d'Italia, opening stage of the Vuelta Espana. We even had cobbled classics going on with Dredagza, Bruga de Pana. Um, I uh, am, again, drinking from the fire hose of bike racing the 2020 season with all of its bizarre twists and turns continues to march on towards its inevitable conclusion. And we here at VeloNews.com are doing our best to cover everything, the news, the COVID news, the racing news, the results, everything like that. So go to VeloNews.com and check it out. We have a great uh, podcast episode coming up today. Second half of the show from the Giro d'Italia, we have an interview with Brandon McNulty. Brandon is kicking butt at the Giro. You've heard him on the podcast before. Young American making his Grand Tour debut. I think he's in like 11th place overall. Third place in the individual time trial. It's just really impressive stuff. We love Brandon, friend of the podcast. So we hear from Brandon. We also hear from friend of the podcast, Sepp Kuss, who is now doing his second Grand Tour of the season at the Vuelta a España. Sepp, we just watched him throw some big haymakers at Ineos Grenadiers. Uh, the final climb of the opening stage to set up his man Primoz Roglic for the win. So we have uh, Andy Hood linked up with Sepp to talk all about his ambitions for the Welta and some uh, reflections on the Tour de France as well. So before we get to our Americans racing the Grand Tours, we have to talk about everything that's happened in the last few days at the Giro, at the Welta, and Flanders. My favorite race happened. Tour of Flanders, no fans. Amazing finish. And uh, with us today to break down all of the action, to answer the questions, and to expound the burning, flaming, red-hot takes, we have James Start and Andrew Hood. Um, James Start is back from the Vuelta, the Giro d'Italia. Andy Hood is in the man cave. He may go to the Vuelta. He may not. We're waiting to see what the uh, COVID situation is like. Uh, James, take us through. Your last couple of days there at the Giro before heading home. Well, my last couple of days kept lingering on. I was originally just going to go for the Grand Partenza, uh, and then uh, decided to stay on to the stages uh, through the south up to Matera. And then we decided to probably hold on until the rest day. And I was actually in the car on the way back to the uh, on the way to the uh, to the uh, airport in Rome when all of uh, on the 
after the rest day, uh, the first rest day, when all of the uh, COVID deaths came out, I think there were what, six, seven of them, eight of them. And Andy Hood and I were discussing it and decided it was best to uh, do a U-turn, pretty much drive back across Italy and get back over there. So I did that. I went back for another three days until uh, Cesenatico, until the Pantani stage, when uh, another one of our colleagues, Jim Cotton, finally uh, came and took over for me. But it was great. I was I always wanted to do the Giro and was able to do two weeks, and it was just tremendous. I think that's about all I had left in me after already doing the Tour de France. But it was I had a great time on it. I thought it was uh, a lot of beautiful racing, a lot of uh, great stories. Um, and just, you know, it's, it's it remains a great race. It's not, you know, it's a complicated year for the Giro. They got squeezed in between uh, the classics after the Tour. Um, they don't have the biggest field. But, you know, epic, a lot of great stages and a lot of great racing. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful race. And now, Andy, you were set to go to the opening stages of the Vuelta, but then it sounds like the COVID situation across Spain has kicked up. Um, access at the Vuelta is very limited. We've decided to to hold you back there. Give our listeners a sense of where you are with uh, attending races through the through the rest of the year. Yeah, Fred, that's right. Just waiting to see how things shake out with COVID. Uh, where I'm actually at right now is under a travel restriction. We can't even actually leave the city limits. I rode my bike there the other day beyond the city limits, and some old geezer started yelling at me, <laughs> saying that you can't uh, cross the city limits for any reason uh, without some exemption or for emergency or health reasons or, you know, for work maybe. So I'm trying to work on that. I need to get another COVID test. I need to get uh, some special permission uh, from uh, the appropriate authorities, and hopefully I'll be up at the, at the Welta. It's going to – Kind of goes uh, into the Pyrenees and loops back around to kind of pretty close to where I'm at in about five days. So I figure I'll save some gas money as well and just hang out here for five days. Yeah, I mean, if uh, worst case scenario, we'll just send you to the top of Alto de Anglerou with a pup tent and like a little gas stove and you can camp up there for a few days. Because I would imagine um, late October, early November on the Anglerou, probably great weather, probably really nice up there. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be kind of a crapshoot when it comes to the weather because sometimes, kind of like Colorado, very similar here in northern Spain, you can get great, you know, late summer weather where it's you know in the seventies, even in the eighties, crystal blue skies, or you can get these freaky storms that come in and and you know there's been snow already on the Tourmalet, there's been a hint of snow up on the, where Farapona and Angleru climbs are already, but uh, right now it's kind of this big storms blowing in through these. This first uh, few days was quite windy in today's first stage of the Welta. It's supposed to be quite nice going into this next weekend. So the Tourmalet looks like it's going to be okay. Fingers crossed. So we have a lot to get to between the Giro and the Welta and COVID-19 and what it means for these two races. But before we get to that, guys, we got to talk about Flanders. Like I said, it's my favorite race. Happened this past Sunday, men's and women's edition. In the men's, we saw what we wanted to see, the mano a mano showdown between Matthew Vanderpool and Wout van Aert. Uh, Vanderpool won by ugh, the width of like my hand in the final sprint. But um, the real story of the day, of course, was that the the action and the thrilling finale was kicked off by Flanders debutante, um, Julian Alaphilippe, who then crashed into a motorcycle, was taken out of the race. Um, James, as our resident Alaphilippeologist, um, I want to get your take on a couple of th things around him. First of all, do you think he actually could have won this race? You know, he's making his Flanders debut, rides really aggressively with 50K to go and kind of kicks off what was eventually the decisive move. Um, we'll never know what happened because he crashed. But like, how do you see Alaphilippe faring in those final 35K if he hadn't crashed? Well, you know, 
on paper uh, against those two guys, I think he had his hands full. Uh, they went up the, you know, the final climbs. They went up. Uh, they just looked so strong, went up so easily. I don't, uh, I didn't, it would be hard to imagine him just dropping them, but maybe he would have, you know, like he did at the world championships. Um, and, but, you know, they got that long run in after the uh, Paderberg. And I just, I, I think the, the path to victory, uh, at least on paper, was not going to be an easy one. We'll never know. And it was a, you know, it was a crazy crash. Um, you know, I don't know what to say about that crash. I don't know what the motor was doing there. Um, you know, he was unlucky to be in the third position. It seemed like, you know, uh, uh, Van, Vanderpool, you know, came came around uh, Woot's wheel and saw that motorcycle at the last second swerve back in, and Alaphilippe got carried out by you know that little that just ever you know was I mean, wasn't a dangerous move by Vanderpool, but he just didn't have time to react, and and uh, and there he was, he was he was in it, but uh, you know he's you know, I think he was on the race radio too. I mean, he's been, it's, it's been a strange tenure in, in Rambo so far. He's been a little bit distracted. I'm not saying that that was the reason for his crash here, but you know, uh, leading out the, uh, the sprint and Liege and putting his hands up too early, almost did it again. Uh, the like midway through or the next week, it was at flesh, uh, Robinson, uh, just barely held off Vanderpool after putting his hands up very early. He seems to be a little, uh, distracted right now, but, uh, with with the jersey and and all these and maybe you know maybe it's just inexperience in these kinds of races. I mean, he's never really raced these races before, um, or maybe it's a rainbow fever. Who knows? It's it's it could be a whole lot of things. But one thing you know about Philippe, you know, he never does anything halfway. When he uh, when he wins, he wins big. When he when he fails, he fails big. And we've been seeing that in all of its uh, in all of its uh, uh, you know. It, 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 Every, every race he's done this year uh, since he's become world champion. Even before, you know, even in the Tour de France, really. I mean, you know, getting that yellow jersey and then losing it to the water bottle with the water bottle thing. I mean, it's just like it's never halfway with him. Yeah, it's a weird year. I mean, on on paper, like the year he's had would be a year that any rider would love to have winning world championships, winning stages of the Tour, wearing yellow for a few days. But like you said, you know, loses the yellow jersey because of a kind of a bonehead move involving the feed zone. Not necessarily his fault, but like the team and him conspired and to, you know, to do it and he lost it. And then uh, Liege-Beston-Liege is oh, just a, just a crushing one, sticking the hands up too early. Almost doing it again at Brabant's appeal, and then this thing at Flanders. I mean, I think you can look at all of them individually and sort of identify specific reasons why they happened. So, like the crash at Flanders doesn't really happen because of the same reason as putting the hands up too early at Liège-Bastogne-Liège. But in aggregate, they do create this narrative um, of Ala Philippe in 2020 as like, you know, the guy. We've always known him to be the guy who races for Panache. And it's like Panache looks awesome when it's successful and when it's not successful or when it's, you know, when it gets tripped up, Panache actually can look really foolhardy, foolheartedly, like, you know, putting the arms up too early or like or crashing in a very dramatic moment of the race. Like I said, you know, I think that all these it, these situations may be you know, separate individual situations. They just happen to happen in the same year, but in aggregate they do kind of add up to this this narrative of like, well, you know, if he was a Belgian and just raced to win and like didn't have the the flair and the, you know, the flashy riding, 
then maybe he would have won all of those events. Um, but I don't know. I think that's a kind of a simplified way of looking at it. Hoodie, what's your take on the uh, Alaphilippe situation? Yeah, I'm a big fan of Alapanache. Uh, in fact, I'm still waiting for my card from James from the official Alaphilippe fan club. I think James is the president of that. Uh, James, where's my, where's my card? But I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, he's kind of made a couple of these bonehead moves, but man, he's the world champion. That's all that really matters. Yeah. I think it, it, people will forget about Liege. I mean, okay, Liege is a monument. It's a huge race, and he'll want to win it someday. Uh, you know, losing it like like he did. Well, he got relegated because he kind of crossed the wheel of uh, he or she as well. But uh, I love the way this guy races. He's just what French cycling and just the whole peloton in general needs, just a flamboyant, charismatic winner. And to have him in the, in the rainbow jersey coming into this next season, I think it's going to be spectacular. You know, fingers crossed that we'll have a relatively normal – racing season in 2021 but having uh julian alaphilippe as a world champion i think it's going to be absolutely fantastic i think fred getting back to the you know i think i don't really think you compare the two things raising your hand which is definitely his fault and crashing into the moto which i did not think was his fault but he seems to be a bit distracted and i think that um well fortunately he's on uh the kuning quink step and patrick lefevere i think is going to be uh Seeing that he is less distracted uh, going into the into the winter and coming into the spring, and I think you're going to see a new Alaphilippe next year. I think he needs the winter to sort of digest everything. I think he's going to come out kicking. I think he's going to come out focused uh, with another year of maturity, uh, having time to to to, to uh, digest the rainbow stripes and really understand what it means. And I think you're going to see somebody who really uh, assumes that and takes takes the rainbow jersey to uh, a very high level. Yeah, it's funny. I've gone back and watched the crash like dozens of times now, just over and over and over again. And I feel like it's one of those situations like when a car crashes on a busy street and you go ask 20 people who viewed it and you get 20 different stories. It's like each time you watch it, you can come away from it different perspective. Like I've watched it and come away from it with the perspective of like, well, Wout was driving right at the motorcycle and kind of veered off at the last second and Vanderpool had to veer and then Philippe is just the last guy in line. So, you know, it's sort of like reaction time gets a little bit slower the further down the line you get. And so naturally he's going to be the one who has the least amount of time to react. But then I watch it again and I'm like, well, maybe Wout was just, you know, he was going for the draft and that's just something that happens in the race. And, you know, maybe my, uh, you know, tinfoil hat of like Wout trying to like be a motorcycle seeking missile really doesn't hold water. Then you can say, well, Alaphilippe really wasn't paying attention. He was like yammering away on his race radio. But like, even I feel like if he's paying expert attention, you know, like they're going so fast and that is coming up so quickly that um, I don't know. I mean, I guess last thing for you, James, before we move on to other topics, again, as our Alaphilippe fan club president, Alaphilippeologist, I mean, what happens to him in those final 35K? What does he try to, you know, you've seen this guy race, you know how he races. What do you think he tries to do in those final 35K? Just hold on or does he try to attack? That's a good call. Um, you know, does he have the legs to go uh, on the Paderberg like he did at World Championships? I don't think he I just think those are very different climbs. The World Championships was the climb was a lot strong, a lot longer, uh, and it gave him a chance to to kind of corner the uh, the big the big uh, what do you got you know the guys who can just power you know the really really power riders like like he had with him um, you know the the Paderberg is is just short enough that he can power over it and I think they would have he would have had trouble. I think he would have had trouble dropping them and and holding off for what is it 10, 12 k all the way to the finish. And 
a three up sprint against those guys. Ah, man, I mean, okay, he bit, he beat uh, Vanderpool in uh, in Flesh Robinson, but you know he has a hard I, I he has a hard time with uh, Van Art, and I just you know it, odds were not with him on paper to to come away a winner. Uh, it seems to me, uh, but he could have had beginner's luck. You just don't know. Women's Flanders was also a thrilling race. Um, Chantal Vanderbrook Block, I'm so used to just calling her Chantal Block, um, took the solo win. I interviewed Chantal a year ago. Well, a year ago at Flanders. So this is a year and a half ago. And she really talked about how Flanders was like the big race that she always wanted to win. She would feel like her career would be incomplete if she didn't win it. And that was like way atop her list. So psyched to see her winning that race because I believe she's set to retire either at the end of this season or next season. Um, there was a moment though that I wanted to, that that I had a hot take on, and that happened um, inside the final thirty k to go. You know the the course it goes over the Kreuzberg, and then it hits a section of pavement that sort of slightly rises up and up and up. And I've ridden it a bunch of times. I call it the Terpstraberg because it's always where Nikki Terpstra seemed to go. It's where he like dropped Nibali the year that he ended up winning. And Annemiek van Vluten attacked and got this big gap, and it's like okay, van Vluten you know, one of the strongest riders of the past five years, like going for it. And then Anna van der Bregen on Bulls Dolmans attacks and bridges up to her and catches up to her. And as, as a fan, I was like, boom, here we go. Like, this is awesome. The two titans of women's racing are going to slug it out over the Eau Quermont and the Paderberg and the run into the finish. And we're going to finally see once and for all who is the baddest gal of 2020 because Van Vluten was flying early, won all the races early, and then Vanderbregen won all the races late. And, you know, it just didn't play out that way. Vanderbregen caught up to Van Vluten and was playing the team card and just sort of stopped pedaling, wouldn't pull through, neutralized the attack. Van Vluten sat up and that was it. They waited for a long time and, and the Peloton eventually came up. And, you know, look, tactically it was the right move, obviously. Bulls Dolmans ended up winning. Like, Vanderbregen wanted to set up her teammate she played the tactical card. Who am I to argue with the Olympic champion who's extremely fit and has shown herself over the last few years to be technically one of the, just technically brilliant. But as a fan, uh, I'm kind of lamenting the fact that we didn't get the Vanderbregen, Van Vluten, like Batman versus Superman slugfest, the finale. I, I, I really wanted to see that one. So that's, that's my two cents. Um, I really wanted to see that play out and it just didn't, but chapeau to Chantal for winning. Um, guys, let's do Giro d'Italia first. Um, we just watched stage 16, really long stage, long breakaway. Jan Trotnik win. Joao Almaeda, um, attacked out of the group, gained a couple seconds, sort of a, a boosting, a, you know, a morale boosting attack. But we're heading into the big high mountains and, the question now is how long can Joao Almeida hold the lead? Because on Sunday, day before the rest day, we had the big summit finish to Piancavallo and Sunweb really lit it up and Almeida got dropped. He did what he could to hold it pink by 15 seconds or so. But what do you guys make of Sunweb, Wilco Kelderman and the, the battle that is set to take place in the final few mountain stages uh, at the at the Giro. Well, the Sunweb obviously has the strongest team right now. Um, you know, Jay Hindley, I think, is in third. He was very strong on that climb. He just paced up Kelderman the whole way. 
It really blew out everybody except uh, the Enios man. Uh, they have obviously a strong team to get Kelderman up and over. I think these kind of big climbs that were the Giro's facing in the next couple of days. But I think it's going to come down to a mano a mano really on the final major summit finales. And looking at it on based on past performance, it's kind of like the stock market. You know, it, it's it's no guarantee a past performance means future profits. So. I don't think this Giro is decided by any measure. Uh, I think the Kelderman has been rock solid. You talk to guys in the race, and they're all saying he looks among the sharpest. But you have the shark uh, lurk, lurking there, and you just have these three big uh, mountain stages remaining and a, one more time trial. So I, I think the race still could just be blown open by somebody having great legs at the right moment. I mean, that might be Kelderman. It might be Almeida. But it could be, you know, it could be maybe Fuglesong just has the – you know, one great day of his life and comes out of nowhere. You know, he's, he's, what's, he's like 12th now, I think. Um, you know, or it could just be this race of attrition all the way to the end and, and it could come down to the final time trial. Um, you know, I, I just think that the, the Giro is far from decided right now. How about Tao? You know, Gilgan Hart. I mean, he's uh, in what, fourth place right now. And uh, he can, you know, he can, I mean, it's not going to be a huge time trial, but he's also having a great, great ride. He's definitely putting material. I mean, Nibali, I love Vincenzo. Um, he's the other fan club I'm a member of, and I'm really good friends with his, his mother just because we, you know, every time I go down to Messina, I, I, I look her up, it seems like, uh, sweet lady. And she, you know, she tells me Vincenzo's very good, very good. She says he's very confident. But even though, you know, I got the inside information with, with Giovanna, he's three minutes, 31 seconds down. And there's another time trial and he's clearly been losing time with TTs. So he's going to have to make up at least four minutes in three stages. That's a lot. It's not impossible, but it's a lot. Um, but I think he's the, of all the guys that are down there a little bit, he's the one guy that could really pop it. I don't see a much, uh, you know, I don't see a uh, Rafael doing it. Uh, you know, Bill Bow, I don't quite see doing it. Uh, Fugel song, I don't see doing. I just don't. They're not the kinds of risk takers that Nibali is. And if there's one guy who can turn the tables, it's going to be him. But he's got he's got himself in a hole right now. But this, this last week is just you know long stages, slugfests. Weather's going to go sour. It looks it looks like the weather's going to be really hard. And um, who knows? Who knows uh, how the uh, the top dogs are going to hold. Yeah, and really the dynamic that it's going to come down to because I don't see Dakuni Quickstep as having. This, a strong enough team to really play the Yumbo Visma team sky in the mountains. So it's going to come down to Sunweb. And so I, I really see the final week of this Giro becoming like a Sunweb versus chaos type uh, Giro where you have these chaos agents like Vincenzo Nibali, maybe even Puzzle Vivo, like guys who are far down. I mean, like you said, Nibali's 331 down. Like the, the, the GC picture right now is so crazy because it's like on, on paper, if this were the Tour de France, you'd be like, it's a two-man race. Joao Almeida and Kelderman at 17 seconds. Jay Hindley's 258. Everyone everyone after that is like three minutes and change down with, you know, Fuglesang is, yeah, he's just at 509 down. Come on, Jakob Fuglesang, what happened? Um, so really, it's going to be this question of like, is this going to be a controlled race? through these big mountain stages and summit finishes where we see guys just battling it out on the final stage? Or are we going to see Nibali take the initiative with maybe some other GC guys and really try to up upend the whole thing? And I'll, you know what? Honestly, a lot of this is just going to come down to weather, I think. 
whether they're able to go over these big high passes and go to Sestriere and go over the uh, Stelvio and stuff. Because if that stuff gets removed, then uh, then the the balance, I think, tips more towards having a controlled race. And if it's a controlled race, you know, yeah, Teo Gegenhart, he's looking strong. He could do something. But really, it's Wilco Kelderman's race at this point to lose. He's the most experienced. He has the strongest team. He's been so close to Grand Tour podiums before. So on paper, you'd say he has the best shot at it, which is so strange, guys, because like, I mean, I think Hoodie, you and I keep joking with Wilco Kelderman. We're like every stage waiting to see like a pack of wild dogs run out of the forest and jump on Wilco Kelderman and drop him out, you know, drag him off or like an asteroid to follow this guy and hit him. He's a very talented racer who's just never had the luck or the legs. I think he's had it he's I think he's put together like a quote unquote flawless grand tour ride once and he was fourth place at the Welta in 2017 and every other grand tour like something miserable has happened to the guy. And so to see him having this um good of a ride to me it's sort of like watching the guy in the circus who's like spinning like 12 plates as he's balancing on, you know, he's bouncing on a balance beam that's that's twirling around like he could do it, but also something awful could happen. Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, Kelderman's one of those guys that, uh, you know, their careers can just tip one way or the other. It's what's so kind of unique about bicycle racing, really, is that luck is a huge factor, really, in these races because all these guys come into these races. And, you know, look at Richie Port. I mean, here's a guy that was kept slugging away at the tour, never really had that luck on his side. You know, in a couple of years there, he was really, you know, he's pole position to win that tour way back in 2014 then he got sick and then uh, a couple of years at bmc he was in great position then he had kind of those crashes a couple of years and then boom and there he is this year third at the tour so it kind of shows that luck is a huge factor but also perseverance if you just keep plugging away if you are a quality rider things will eventually turn your way and i think that's what we're seeing right now at the giro with kelderman you know, we'll see if he can hang on for uh, five more days, but he's certainly in a good spot. I mean, Kent, uh, you know, Almeida, man, he's, you know, he's been impressive. Everyone expects the wheels to fall off of his cart at any day. And, you know, he's really untested at high altitude and, and these longer mountain stages. You know, I actually, I was one of the few journalists, I have to say, I actually did an interview with him right before the tour, the Giro started, because I'd seen him race you know, earlier in the season. I'm like, man, this guy's good. And uh, I just had a nice little chat with him. But he said, you know, the most he's ever raced before it was uh, 10 days at the Tour de l'Avenir and the Baby Giro. So he's completely into this kind of unknown wild frontier and his own personal depth and experience. So, I mean, if he if he can make it to the podium, that's a huge, huge uh, accomplishment. But he could still win. I mean, the way the guy's racing and what he did uh, Sunday in the mountains to kind of dig deep and and uh, defend the pink jersey, that just revealed a lot of strength and character, that grinta that's so important in a bike race. So, and we saw today at this stage, he attacked at the end and got a few seconds back. So, uh, you know, we can't count him out either. You can't. And he's got one huge advantage on his, on his side. He's, he, he doesn't know his limits. He's a first, you know, he's, he's just coming into this. He's young. He's having the race of his life. It's what we call in French a state of grace. And, um, you know, he just, until he, until he cracks, he's, he hasn't, you can't count him out. And he, he just made, this might be the best, uh, Three week tour he ever has in his life, uh, but right now he's on fire. He's you know he's making you know he can do no wrong really. So I, I certainly wouldn't count him out, especially since you know it, 
his biggest rivals is 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 probably Kellerman. Uh, plus, product of the North American system. He was a Hoggins Berman action guy. I remember watching him race the Tour of Utah last year, having a really good ride. He slotted into fourth place overall um, and was up there with you know guys like Ben Hermans and Joe Dombrowski um, as a U23. And you, know, you kind of got a glimpse that, okay, this guy can climb and he's a real smart, savvy racer. But still, I mean, as impressive as he was in some of these early performances, this is just – this is a ride of a lifetime. I mean, I think we can say that like Joao Almeida at the 2020 Giro d'Italia is a ride of a lifetime. Like someday this guy hopefully is going to win Grand Tours and we're going to look back on this race and just be like, yeah, wow. Like, you know, this guy blossoming before our very eyes. I, I just wonder how long does he stay at Quick Step? You know, the squad that's built for like week-long stage races and big heavy classics. Like you got to figure at some point the Yumbo Vismas or Ineoses or other – Grand Tour centric teams out there are looking at Joao going, boy, we could get this guy and build a build a huge team around him. Um, if if uh, if if uh, Patrick Lefevre is smart, and he's certainly not dumb, um, you know he could build a tour team between him and Alaphilippe. You know, and they've you know all of a sudden, I mean. They got guys that are, you know, I've, I've been impressed with the team. They've been they've been with them uh, in some pretty hard stages, pretty far into the state, you know, into the stage the stage around the uh, 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 You know, Quick Step was as good as any team out there, and it's like we've always been going. Well, why doesn't uh, Alaphilippe have a team like this in the Tour de France? Well, maybe that's maybe they're not that far from putting a, a stage race team together. Really, we'll just have to see what their real priorities are. Um, well, that's it. I mean. The Giro is entering its uh, hilly, mountainous, snowy, painful finale. So the next time we link up, we're going to be talking about who won the Giro. Um, and I, I, we're going to have to talk about the legacy of the 2020 Giro because I think you could look at this pa- this Giro on paper and say, ooh, this is one of the softer Grand Tours in recent history. Started off great, but now it's sort of like, eh. But hey, it all depends on you know how hard the course is and how hard everyone's going. And, and right now it looks like they are going very hard. Guys, let's talk Welta real quick before we get to our interviews because the Welta started today as we were recording this. We had a great mountain stage with uh, Primoz Roglic winning the stage, uh, taking the first red jersey. And a couple of things we need to get to. First, um, Chris Froome got dropped. Chris Froome came in as co-leader of Ineos Grenadiers, and he got dropped early, not on the last climb, but on the penultimate climb. He eventually caught back on. He got dropped while Ineos was on the front going really hard. It was just a really kind of strange and bummer series of events for old uh, Froomey. Uh, Andy, you're, you know, you've followed this guy's career, written about this team endless amounts. What do you make of Froome getting dropped stage one, losing 11 minutes and, and getting dropped at the moment when his team is on the front? Yeah, it was really just uh, kind of uh, reflected where Chris Froome is in the hierarchy of the Peloton when his own team, obviously the torch has been passed to Richard Carapaz. And just within that whole, organi- within that whole organization, they made such a switch uh, inside Ineos Team Sky over just the last two years. I mean, it's a rebuilding process that Brailsford kind of started 2017-18, kind of realizing that, you know, these guys, the, the Garen Thomases and the Chris Rooms are getting old and uh, started to rebuild the team. And, you know, the team now 
it's it's UK registered, but man, the language of the team is Spanish. I mean, the whole all the stars, all the support writers, all the top climbers are all Colombians and Ecuadorans, and uh, you know, it's it's been interesting transformation of that team. And just to see Froome, who was you know he's he's been the most successful Grand Tour rider of the last ten years. He's won seven Grand Tours, and to see him just be you know, flailing off the back. I mean, coming into this Welta. You know, he needs to finish this Welta. I think, you know, I don't think he was expecting to be challenging for the victory. But there's a, there's a sense of underlying frustration, I think, with with Froome. Because we chatted to him briefly on Monday. And then he had a few post-stage uh, comments today. And, uh, you know, his tone changed so much just in one day. Because yesterday he was sounding optimistic. He hoped to kind of get through this first week and still have some options and help the team and blah, blah, blah. And then today he's just like, I just hope I make it to Madrid, you know, because I don't, you know, you can see that in his body language that he's frustrated because, you know, he's like looking down, he's he's like doing what he's done for 15 years, but he can't go as fast as everybody else anymore. So he's got to be, there's got to be some red flags going on inside of his mind right now. Yeah. And and in the Israel uh, startup nation, he just paid a lot of money to, to bring him on. I mean, they got to have, they have a few red flags too, but you know, Hey, uh, Contract is signed, sealed, delivered. We'll see about that. But uh, you, you know, you said how obviously Ineos has taken a very strong um, Spanish accent. But you know, again, uh, Tao uh, is is very British. He's a London rider, and he's uh, he's looking at a podium in the in the Giro right now. Uh, so you know, they, they they could have they could have a new uh, a new uh, national hero, hero with with Tao. He's a tremendous rider. I've known him since he was. Uh, a U23 at the uh, at the Tour de, uh, the Tour de l'Avenir. Uh, he's been uh, he's been paying his dues at Ineos. I was starting to worry that he was gonna just spend too much time being a uh, a team worker and never really take on leadership himself. But um, he's shown in this year that he can take on leadership. Um, so uh, it might not be a you know they, I don't think they're going to be uh, changing their uh, license holdership anytime soon to Columbia, you know, uh, they still have some, some pretty good Brits on the team. My question is just like, you know, okay. Frum's having a bad day and he's sort of slipping off the back. Does he speak in, does he go on the radio and say, Hey guys, stop. Uh, hey, Andre Amador, stop, you know, crushing it on the front of this group. I am getting dropped right now. Or is it just, uh, you know, when that happens, not on the final climb, but on the penultimate climb, it's just like, hey, man, you know, like, sorry, you just don't have the legs. No, I don't think he he, he knows he didn't have that kind of, he doesn't have that kind of weight on the team anymore. He knows that. Wow. If we would have been in like 2015, 2016 and looked in our crystal balls at what would be happening in 2020, I don't think uh, any of us would be believing that. Um, It's look, it's real early in this Welta, and we have some big stages coming up. This Welta is crazy. It opens with some of these big summit finishes and mountain stages right in the beginning. And then, like I said, we have the Anglerou coming up later. But already, there's some space in the GC with uh, Roglic and Carapaz 1-2. So, on paper, this this Welta could be boiling down to a Ineos versus Jumbo Visma just Total slugfest. Oh, James is shaking his hand. We got Dan Martin up there, Esteban Chavez, Felix Grosschartner of Bora Hansgrohe, and Enric Maas, movie star, also in that front group. Um, and then I was really psyched for Mike Woods at this Welta, and he crashed out early. He crashed early, lost a ton of time. And so Hugh Carthy is now EF's man for the GC. Um, 
But, you know, James, tell me why my Yumbo versus Ineos at the Welta Slugfest is not the proper way to read this this race. Because it's stage one. It's stage one of a three-week race. I mean, no. Uh, and, you know, you got uh, – I don't, I don't know where Valverde was today, but, I mean, he's still, he's still uh, there. And it's just, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of – a lot of road to cover still, so I don't see this thing as uh, as, as anywhere close to a two-person race yet. Uh, I'll agree with you, Fred. I think it's uh, I think it's Jumbo versus Ineos, uh, two strongest teams, two strongest riders, uh, with Movistar scrapping to get on the podium with Enrique Mas. Uh, but just the way, just the way that uh, you know anything could happen. I mean, the weather's going to be disruptive factors during this during this Vuelta. Um, you know, so there's going to be some crashes, people getting sick. Uh, but just the way, this the way that uh, Yumbo throttled the race. I mean, Ineos was setting the pace, and then uh, Yumbo just went to the front and just smashed it with uh, Sepp Kuss. And then, uh, you know, they dropped Dumoulin. I was surprised to kind of see that. Uh, you know, I was more surprised to see the Yumbo tactic more than Ineos. I mean, I think Ineos was going in today knowing that Froome wasn't 100%. His marching orders were probably just hang on as long as you can. You know, we're riding for Carapaz in this finale. But I was more surprised to see Dumoulin get trilling off the back there because he was, even just yesterday, saying he was hoping to finish on the podium. Of course, as James has said, you know, it's just the first day. But, um, the, you know, really the hard part of this year of this Welta is really in the first, it's these first three stages and you got uh, the Tourmalet. Then it's in next week at three hard stages next weekend. And that basically will decide the Welta because the last little run in back to Madrid. All transition stages, one mountaintop finale at Covetia, but it's nothing. Uh, it's nothing really to shake a stick at. It's not. It's a Cat One finale, you know, long, hard, exposed, but it's not uh, nearly as, as steep or demanding as some of these typical climbs we see in northern Spain. I got my eyes on Langularu for Sep. How awesome would it be to see that guy win on that climb? That would be awesome. I think. I think Fred, you're the uh, president of the Sep Kuss fan club. Yeah. If I'm president hoodie, then you are a, a, an able vice president of that fan club. That, that's right. Yeah, Sup. He's, uh, you know, he's such a he's such a laid back guy. It's such a contrast in his personality, really, isn't it? I mean, when you speak to him, he's polite. You know, he's like, you know, he's like the kind of kid you you know you want your sister to get hooked up with, maybe. But then on the bike, he's just a stone cold killer. He can just drop everybody and and make it look easy. Well. Lots of bike racing left to go in 2020. Here we are uh, approaching the end of October. And, you know, the end is not yet in sight, but it's coming up. But, um, you know, stay tuned to VelaNews.com because we're going to have news and information from all the stuff coming up. So thank you to James Start and Andrew Hood. And let's go hear from Sepkos and Brandon McNulty. 2020 Giro d'Italia is entering its unpredictable and dramatic final week, and Flow Bikes is home to all the action for viewers in the United States and Canada. Plus, the Vuelta Espana has only just begun, and Flow Bikes will be broadcasting the entire race live and on-demand in Canada. In addition to the live broadcast, subscribers worldwide will have access to a wealth of behind-the-scenes content, exclusive interviews with writers, expert analysis, and more. Don't miss the drama in store over the coming weeks. Sign up at flowbikes.com slash velanews. That is F-L-O bikes com forward slash News. Okay, let's get back to the podcast.
All right, here we are, uh, remotely talking to Sapa. With the COVID restrictions and everything, we can't uh, be face to face. And if we were, we'd have face masks on. Now, now, Sepp, uh, you know, just looking back at the Tour de France now, it's been you know a couple of weeks, several weeks. Uh, just looking back for you personally, well, you know, what does that mean? I mean, you had such a great tour. You know, you, you were there deep into the race. Uh, you finished fifteenth without really that being your goal. You know, such a great result. And uh, just for you personally, what, what does it mean now reflecting on a few weeks after the race? I think um, it's funny because it, it feels like so long ago that we were racing the tour. But, um, yeah, I think the how I felt in the race and, um, you know, being there in those key moments definitely gave me a lot of confidence. Um, you know, it was such an unsure season and you never know where your form is. And then you only have a few races to really build up. So it was uh, – yeah, it was nice that I could could really be there and at a at a high level, um, especially in the in the third week of the tour. So, um, yeah, for sure, a lot of confidence. Um, and then now going to the Volta, uh, it's it's still the same thing. I mean, the, the tour was still a while ago, and and hopefully, I I still feel the same. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to see. But uh, yeah, it was a good uh, good race. Oh, for sure. Um... You know, uh, it was such a, a kind of a letdown there with with Primos on that last day when Pogacar just uncorked that great time trial. What was that, what was going through your mind when you were watching that stage, and uh, how you reflect on that now? Yeah, I mean, it was um, for sure a bit of a surprise, but I think, um, yeah, well, on one hand, everything had been going so smooth that up until that point that we were, um, yeah, we were really confident because everything had gone perfectly and we'd saved the energy and everything for the time trial. But, uh, yeah, Pogacar did a exceptional ride. And, um, you know, I, I think we, we knew he definitely had that in him. He was so, so strong the whole race. Um, but, uh, yeah, a, a bit bitter sweet in the, in the end, but, um, yeah, of course we were happy with, with what we did. And, um, yeah, I think, I think, as as cyclists, you're used to quickly moving on from things and, and focusing on the next goal, and so I think that's that's where we are now with with the Volta coming up. We're already focused on that, and and uh, yeah, we'll wait for the tour for for next year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, in fact, we were just talking to uh, Primos and uh, Tom Dumoulin on a, on a Zoom call right before we're chatting now, and. And uh, they were saying the same thing that you know you just turn the page and you put your focus on on the next challenge. Uh, did did you ever feel like that uh, looking back on that race that you guys made a mistake perhaps by not you know riding stronger against Pogachar? I mean there were some comments I think he, even Eddie Merckx might have said something like that, but uh, you know it's probably hard to say now. But Pogachar was just the strongest rider on that time trial, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, you know, I think. We, a lot of our strategy was built around, you know, having a, a buffer and then defending that until the TT. So, um, but I mean, really looking back, it's hard to say where we could have gotten, uh, that amount of time on him. I mean, I think if we look back, the biggest amount of time was in the, uh, the crosswind stages and, um, you know, in, in the mountains for sure, we could have, uh, you know, used used a guy like Tom differently to attack, um, to to maybe draw the others out. But it's it's also hard when you're when you're defending the jersey. You have to um, ride in a in a defensive way to an extent, just to keep the team together. Um, 
you know, save your bullets, things like that. So, um, yeah, maybe if, if UAE, for example, had been in the jersey earlier on, then we could have uh, taken advantage of that situation. But, yeah, it's it's hard to look back now and say this and that. But I think overall we, we did everything we could. Yeah, I mean, the team's been riding so great. Um, you know, we've, we saw the team actually pull out of the Giro. So are you kind of concerned about the Welta? I mean, you guys had your COVID test, it sounds like, yesterday. All the riders were clear. What's what's your general feeling and mood right now going into this Welta in terms of the whole question around the coronavirus? I think for myself, I'm not too concerned. I mean, with, with how this year is, uh, you know, you, you can't be surprised with anything. And, and the fact that we can start is already a, a bonus. So um, in terms of that, I think it's it's OK. But, um, yeah, for me, I just worry or hope that, uh, you know, the, the towns and everything and the areas at the, the finish, um, there's not too many groups of people. You know, we don't want to uh, make too big of an attraction as <laughs> as hard as that is to do uh, when it's a, a bike race that, that everybody's used to being on the roadside for. So. Um, yeah, I think we're, we're sensitive to what the situation is in Spain right now. Oh, but, um, yeah, as, as far as the race goes, it's, it, it feels really, really secure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the big stage victory last year for you, high-fiving the fans as you rode into the finish line, it sounds like that won't be happening this year, will it? Because they've, it sounds <laughs> like they've banned the fans and all the roads, eh? Yeah, exactly. We we were joking the other day that we got to if, if one of us went, we have to do some imaginary uh, interaction or something like that. But uh, yeah, it'll it'll be strange, I think, especially with the race being so much in the in the Basque country and everything, where the fans are so um, yeah so special. Uh, it'll it'll definitely be a different feeling uh, without all those people on the roadside. Indeed, indeed. Now uh, speaking about the Welta. Um both Tom and Primos were saying that the team tactic is basically the same as the tour, that you guys are going in with those two guys as the co-leaders and then kind of rallying around the one who kind of comes out strongest after the first week or so. Is that, is that the general plan right now? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think they've, they've both shown that, that, uh, yeah, they're, they're super strong riders and, and Tom was, was only getting better in the tour. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the time trial, uh, the beginning of the third week is is a good time trial for them. So, um, yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty honest start. It's a tough tough race right from the beginning. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll try and keep them both close, and and with with that, then we'll have more cards to play, and then we can um, use use our guys differently. And what what role do you slip into for this uh, Welta set? Basically, the same role you're playing at the tour, or where you even have perhaps a little bit of freedom for yourself, depending on how the race goes. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, um, yeah, with with the the mountain stages being pretty much right from the beginning, uh, yeah, it's it's also an opportunity to, to uh, bring other teams out to uh, force them to chase. But I think, yeah, for, for the most part, I'll. I'll be, be helping uh, Primoz and Tom and um, yeah with, with so many mountain stages it's it's good uh, good area for me to, to help those guys what's it going to be like racing uh, you know you're saying that you know this time last year you might have been race, racing it's uh, you know the Criterion's Japan or, or you know by November you're on the beach what's it going to be like racing uh, you know all the way to November 8th I mean that that's that's like unprecedented in cycling how is it going to affect the tactics and how is it going to impact the riders do you think 
I, I think it depends. I mean, for me, I'd, I'd always rather have a, a season that ends later than that starts earlier. So I, I don't have any problem with racing later, but you know, it's, it has been a long season, even with the lockdown. I think most of the, the Peloton was still inside on the trainer. Um, and that, that definitely takes a mental toll. So, um, and then, yeah, the racing has been so intense, uh, since it started. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of mental, uh, fortitude that you still have to have in, uh, <laughs> in the bad weather and, uh, late in the season when, when everybody else, except for the riders doing the Volta are on uh, vacation. So, um, yeah, I think that'll be a big factor. Yeah. Who do you see really is the, is the favorites you got, uh, Enios with a strong team and uh, Movistar is always there. Anyone that stands out, or is it really just it's almost impossible to say who's going to be strong? Oh, I think you know, Carapaz will be really strong on Enios. Um, yeah, Movistar with uh, Moss, I think you know, their, their whole team will be really motivated, uh, with it being the Volta. Um, let's see who else. Oh, yeah, it's it's hard to say, but I, I'd say. Those those guys would be the main uh, main favorites, and uh, you know maybe Pino, but he also might be going more for for stage wins. So we'll we'll have to see. So you guys are uh, in Spain. Do you have a chance to uh, get some of the good jamón ibérico and some uh, Rioja, or does that have to wait until the end of the Vuelta? Yeah, I think it'll have to wait until the end. We've got a good uh, good chef, so unfortunately we don't get to have too much. Uh, nice basque uh pinchos or anything but uh, <laughs> i think uh towards the end we'll we'll definitely uh, indulge right on step we'll let you go thanks for the time and uh, have a great welter and we'll catch up to you uh, perhaps later in this race sounds good andrew thanks a bunch right on man thanks a lot appreciate it yeah my guest on the vel news podcast today it's a guy who's racing the Giro d'Italia in his Grand Tour debut. He's sitting in 11th place overall. It's Brandon McNulty, friend of the podcast, back on the podcast. Brandon, we just spoke about um, how you came into this race with the expectation to both make your Grand Tour debut and learn about what it's like to race a three-week race, but also to have GC expectations, which means you have to be focused every stage. When you first got that assignment, was were you nervous or were you like champing at the bit to get going with it? I wasn't super nervous. I mean, because also like the team that gave me this assignment, but it's like there was also like zero pressure. I mean, I guess if I, you know, if I cracked on day five, then it would be different, but so I think everyone, my surprise and maybe the team too, like day 15, I was still going quite good. So yeah, I mean, for me, there, there was never any pressure of like, I had to do it. It was just like, that's what, that was the goal. And I mean, it's gone well so far. What have you learned about your body up to this point? I guess I've learned I can actually, uh, kind of build form over a grand tour. Like by the first rest day, I was a bit tired. And then after that, I was actually feeling starting to feel stronger and then definitely yesterday was probably the most tired i felt but we'll see how everything goes after this this next rest day and what have you learned about your racing intellect and your what have you learned about your brain basically as a racer over these last 15 days i think i've been i've I've been happy with the way i've raced i think like that stage i got second on i feel like i was 
quite smart. I mean, I just followed the wheels and then I knew, I knew if I would attack on the flats and get a, a gap, it would be hard for the GC group to close. And that's what happened. And yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I'm quite happy with yeah everything, everything I've done so far. Is there anything over the last 15 days of racing you wish you would have done differently? I think I maybe would have raced Edna slightly different. Maybe I got a bit excited early and then paid for it, especially once we got got past like the 1500 meter mark where you start to feel the altitude a bit. And then uh, the big day, I forget which the day I lost the most time um, early on. I guess I couldn't have done anything differently, but I wish I would have had slightly better legs on the final climb on that day. Because that was a lot of time lost over kind of nothing. It was a it was strange that I couldn't follow. But yeah, otherwise I think it's been good for me. Awesome. Well, it's been really thrilling to watch, Brandon. I mean, you first came on this podcast, I believe it was 2017, when you were making your debut with rally cycling. You know, you had famously opted to um, instead of going straight to the World Tour, do a few years at the Pro Continental Tour level, race overseas, race in the United States, kind of dip your toe into it before going whole hog into it. Now you're making your Grand Tour debut, and I'm curious what your perspective is on that decision. Are you still happy that you did that, or do you feel like you could have jumped into World Tour racing, Grand Tour racing back when you were 19? No, I'm definitely no regrets. Like, I think it was still the best decision for me. I mean, maybe I could have gone to the World Tour, but, I mean, I was still I was still a kid. Like, it's just like, it's not that I'm not having fun now, but it's it's different. It's like it's quite intense, and it's just rather rather. I think it was good for me to just be able to do it slowly because we still had World Tour races on rally, but it, also we had like races in the U.S. and lower level races, and had a lot more fun. So now I feel I feel like this year wasn't such a jump. Like I already knew what was what to expect because I had some experience, but was also just ready mentally and everything so yeah for me it was definitely the right decision hey how are you getting treated in that front group of gc guys i know that sometimes you know you hear stories of young guys and their grand tour debuts and they're maybe not getting every single wheel they want or they're getting you know flicked here and there i'm curious how the uh what what the attitude has been like towards you this grand tour rookie uh who's riding so high up in the standings yeah i think it's, it's definitely a fight but I think it's a fight for everyone I don't know if I'm necessarily singled out but and I think yesterday actually because I was in the white jersey was probably the easiest to ride where we wanted but I think also I mean the hard days before maybe it's tough at first but once it goes full it's like if you can get ahead of someone they'll probably let you in because everyone's suffering so I found like once it does it really hard it's fine to make a fun group just because everyone's a bit the tired and suffering, so I don't, I don't think I've been bullied or anything. And you always hear about how in these Grand Tour races, I mean, that's like such a step up for someone making their debut is like the daily fight, like the fight for the wheel and the fight for the positioning. And, you know, for people who just jump into it without, you know, sort of dipping their toe in, it can be a bit much. I mean, how have you found that, just the daily fight? It can definitely get a bit mentally draining, but I find, I find I'm able to pick my moments like there's times where you don't like maybe guys are fighting for wheels but it's also like 150k to go for no reason but i mean i think when the race is on it's the same fight as any other race just just a bigger grand tour but yeah 
hasn't been too much of a shock, I'd say. Ah, well, that's good to hear. You know, Brandon, everyone this year, their 2020, to a certain degree, has been defined by the racing shutdown and coronavirus and having these plans at the beginning of the year and seeing those plans get washed away and, you know, hey, I was going to go to this training camp and then do these races as I built up to, you know, objective X. Um, what has your... What did your 2020 buildup for the Giro look like, and how dramatically different was it from what it was originally going to be? Yeah, I mean, originally I was supposed to do the Volta, but I mean, it's a different race, but also it's the same, not the same time, but similar. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that wasn't so different, but yeah, like it was a bit tough. It was tough, like back in June, to really be motivated because, like, I did, honestly didn't think we were really going to race much even when it restarted i didn't have much hope but so yeah and then i came it was our the first obstacle was just getting into europe it took like because i don't i wasn't the year this year i planned to get a visa for spain but once the world shuts down you can't there's not really much government work going on like that so to get back into spain was quite quite an issue it took like four days of travel of getting denied in places in amsterdam and Sorry, I lost like four days there, and then my bike took another four days. So by the time I was settled in Europe, I'd not ridden for like a week and a half, basically. So that was the first kind of issue. And then, then I did some altitude and came into Poland, I think. And I was just kind of started really bad. I was just not not fit, and also the restart was like everyone was just full gas because like. You never knew when the last race was, I think. And normally you can start a season a bit under and build into it, but not this time was different because some guys are at 100% and then some guys were in the same boat, like not really there and just getting, you know, blown out. So then in Lombardia and another smaller race in France, and it was the same thing, just not there. And then I was supposed to do Trano, but then my coach and I decided it would be better just to stay at home and uh, just do a huge training block instead of risking like doing another race and then digging a bigger hole. So basically I just trained for like four, four or five weeks into the Giro, which I think was the right decision, but it's been a weird, a weird year all around for sure. In those early races back then, when you're getting blown out the back and you can tell the fitness isn't there and something's missing, how did you keep yourself mentally in the game and not just get super depressed i mean i was a bit sad but i mean it's one thing if you don't if you don't know why you're not doing well but for me it's like okay i'm not at the level but also we can pinpoint exactly why just because training was not perfect so for me i knew like because at this point it's still like early august so i knew my mid-october like i have plenty of time to get back to my normal level which is the case i think it's true so that wasn't too big of a deal now it's now i'm back to back to normal and i don't remember it so it's yeah so it's almost like you kind of have to have some faith in the process that hey i've done this before i know what it's like i know what's missing yeah yeah exactly but also i think i mean even if i was if i was winning races in august then i don't think i would be doing quite so well right now because that's a long time to be at a, a high level. So. Now, Brandon, I ran into you on the bike paths in Boulder back in July or August, and you were in town doing a training camp with some riders on the Lux development team. And you came up through Lux, worked with Roy Nickman. And um, I talked to Roy after that, and he said, you know, it was like so valuable for these junior riders 
to spend some time riding with Brandon, you know, a graduate of the program. Here he is in his world tour kit. Um, what was that experience like and what did you get from it? Yeah, it was fun. It's fun to see the team like it's practically a different team now from when I was on it, just how much it's grown. And it's cool to see the guys, all those kids are they're super motivated and uh, some days they're like out training me, which is crazy. But yeah, I think it's it's exciting for the future of the sport to have programs like that. What type of advice or what type of advice would you did you have or would you have for young, talented junior Americans who are at that level right now, who are you know looking at you and saying, "Boy, I want to get to that level someday." Like, what would you tell them? Uh, I still believe in that it should just be like you should still just be having fun at that age. Like, it's easy to get wrapped up in training it like it's a job already, but really is not and like it just needs you just need to enjoy it and kind of relax at that point and like i knew i've always had that mindset but now now that i've gotten to where i wanted to be back then it's like i see it's even more important like you think you think like you need to get there fast but it's a long way and then i still think i hope to have another long time in the at this level so it's yeah it's just yeah, have fun, relax, <laughs> be a kid. We're recording this on the first rest day, and we've just come off of two pretty polar opposite days for you. You know, on Saturday, the individual time trial, you finished third place overall. I mean, huge ride. Um, first of all, take me through that race, and what was the emotion when you realized you had finished third? Yeah, it was a bit of a, bit of a weird day because I, I did my warm-up on the trainer, and I was just like, I couldn't even finish the, the normal warm-up I had. My legs are just like loaded with like lactic acid and burned. So I was like a bit worried, but I was also, I mean, day 15. I mean, I just expect everyone to feel like that. And then, yeah, I got started and then I had the pacing strategy from the team. So I had an idea of what I had to do. Um, and then somehow right when I started, I was just able to nail the power that they had for me in the speed. And then. The first time Jack I heard, I was like a few seconds off Ghana. So I was like, that really kind of got the adrenaline going. And then, yeah, I just rode as hard as I could for the, the rest of the TT. And then, yeah, I think, I don't know if it's really even set in that to be on the podium in a TT like that, like, it's a bit crazy, actually, I think, for me. So... It's, I'm super excited. It was a, probably one of the best TTs I've ever had. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you know, you're on the podium next to Ghana, the current world champion, and a guy who, I mean, he's good, but he's on incredible form right now. So to be right up there with him, I mean, that's just a that's a huge accomplishment. Um, next day, stage 15, big summit finish to Piancavallo, and it, look, it was a big, tough climb. Team Sunweb very motivated, lighten up the pace. Um, you lost some time on that day, but you know, take me through that final climb and then your emotion at the finish. I don't know if I was, I wasn't on the best day of my life, but I wasn't even that bad. It was just like, I think the race is finally kind of caught up to me at that point. My legs are just, they're just tired. So the pace was quite high from early on and I lost the wheels after a couple K and then I'm all, I've always been good at just riding my own pace up the climb and trying to minimize losses. So that's what I tried to do. But yeah, it was, by the end, it got really a bit grim because I was just giving everything I had to, to get to the line. But yeah, I was a bit disappointed, but then I had to step back and realize, like, still super young. So, I mean, it's not, not the end of the world. 
still a long way to go. All right, Brandon McNulty, again, coming on the Vela News Podcast. We're going to be cheering for Brandon throughout the rest of the Giro d'Italia. Uh, thanks again, Brandon. Yeah, thank you. Take care.